The story is told that at the close of the Constitutional Convention of 1787, as Benjamin Franklin left Independence Hall on the final day of deliberation, he was approached by a lady who asked him this question. Well, doctor, what have we got? A republic or a monarchy? Dr. Franklin replied, a republic, if you can keep it. And it was through great and laborious pains that this republic was birthed nearly a quarter of a millennia ago. But it did happen due to a curious mixture of the wisdom of our founding fathers, the independent spirit of the citizens they served, and the acknowledgement by all that the providential hand of God himself bestowed aid. That God blessed the founding of our country can be read in the many speeches and seen in the numerous symbols of that day. For example, in 1782, Congress approved the symbols and phrases to be used and included in the great seal of the United States. Included on the reverse side of the seal above an unfinished pyramid is the eye representing one of the Founding Fathers' favorite titles for God, namely Providence. Above the eye of Providence is the Latin phrase, Anuit Coeptus. Taken together, it means this. Providence favors our undertakings. That Congress believed that they were on the side of God in this new order of the ages, which is how to translate the Latin phrase beneath the pyramid. And indeed, this undertaking, called the United States, was a new order for the ages. There was no other nation on earth like it, and certainly those of us today who believe in providence would agree that he favored the undertakings of our founding fathers. Not that all of their actions were right morally, for a nation without fault did not exist at that time, nor has it ever existed. As long as nations are ruled by flawed men with feet of clay, so the nations they lead be. Moral failings and blind spots notwithstanding, certainly Providence had his hand in the formation of this new synthesis of such diverse peoples. Just how diverse and disparate was indicated by a different Latin phrase on the front of the Great Seal. E pluribus unum. Out of many, one. Many different kinds of people from many lands would make up this new nation. And this has been one of our strengths since the day we were founded. The phrase e pluribus unum quickly became so ingrained in this nation's consciousness that it made its way onto our coins, and this without ever having been made the official motto of the United States. It was, also, it was always the de facto model until In God We Trust was adopted by Congress in 1956. But I wonder if E Pluribus Unum remains true anymore. It seems to me, and quite apparently so, that we are no longer one. Our nation is deeply divided in many ways, so much so that a more accurate phrase to describe our current state of affairs, regardless of whether the translation is accurate, would be e unum 
pluribus. Out of one, many. As our country has become more fractured and the unifying fabric of our nation becomes more frayed, we are quickly disintegrating into factions. Regardless of which faction or factions you identify with, the greatest enemy and threat you face seemingly is not overseas, but within the nation itself. That enemy is them. Who's at fault? Who's to blame for these fractures in America? Well, at this point, it does not matter. For neither side will ever convince the other to change their mind. The fault lies with whoever you believe the enemy to be. You know, them. A better question, and a question that has a better answer is this. How did our nation become so divided? Spiritually speaking, this was, barring direct divine intervention, inevitable. It was as inevitable as the effect of gravity upon someone who falls from a secure place. You see, when the physical laws of this universe are tested, the hard truth of reality becomes known to the one testing them. The same is true of spiritual laws. And the lawmaker of physical and spiritual truths is one and the same. It is God. In September of 2019... In a message titled, One Nation Under Wrath, I showed you eight of the most common biblical signs that a society is suffering the wrath of God. In other words, in what ways did nations in the Bible suffer when they endured God's wrath? Those eight signs of God's wrath are these. Natural disasters, constant conflict between people, the people are subjugated to harmful laws, the people suffer the loss of finances. Failure is common, and when success happens to occur, it is unfulfilling. The enemies of the nation rule over it. And the final two are the most noteworthy, as every time they occur widespread throughout a nation, it is a sign of God's wrath. The final two are these, broken families and Wisdom is removed both from the people and their leaders. Of this final sign of God's wrath, the removal of wisdom, let me read Job chapter 12, verses 23 through 25. It says, He, that's the Lord, makes nations great, then destroys them. He enlarges nations, then leads them away. He deprives the world's leaders of reason, and makes them wander in a trackless wasteland. They grope around in darkness without light. He makes them stagger like a drunkard. Are these eight biblical signs of God's wrath present in our nation today? To me, the answer is obvious. The question we need to answer now is this. Why? What have we done? To deserve God's wrath. Well, I'll show you. In Romans 1, the Apostle Paul talks about the wrath of God, and here's the gist of what he says. 
Basically, he says, when we ignore God by refusing to glorify Him or give thanks to Him, God allows us to try to satisfy the wicked desires of our hearts. However, our hearts are never satisfied. And unless we repent, we will continue to spiral downward into further depravity. And if we continue to refuse to acknowledge God, our minds will grow so corrupt that we will eventually come to believe that wrong is right and right is wrong. We will become so confused that we will not even know the difference between a man and a woman. Our spiritual condition will eventually decline to the point that we begin to commit any number of self-destructive acts. Ultimately, not only will we justify and defend our own perversities, but we will actually find reason to celebrate them. Now, hidden in plain sight of Paul's exposition of God's wrath in Romans 1 is a very interesting word. Verse 26 of that chapter calls humanity's unbridled and sinful actions not just morally wrong, or not just a falling short of God's standards, but these particular sins are of a totally different category. The word he uses is unnatural. By unnatural, Paul is referring to those sins that go against or even try to reverse God's created order. The idea is this. Before sin had ever entered the world, in the perfection of creation, God established an order to certain things. And He does not allow a perversion or a reversal of His created order to go unanswered for very long. In the perfection of God's creation, in Genesis 2, 17, for example, God commanded the man not to eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. God did not instruct the woman in this. Why? She was not yet created. She would be shortly created thereafter. So in order for the man and the woman to obey God, they simply had to follow his created order of authority. And it is this, that God commands the man to obey God. The man instructs his wife, Eve, to obey God. Men and women together have dominion over the creation, including the animals. But what happened? When Adam and Eve sinned, everything was reversed. The serpent bypassed the man entirely and deceived the woman to disobey God. She refused to listen to her husband and he failed to step in and intervene. And so instead of the man instructing his wife to obey God, she instructed him to disobey God. This was not simply a sin against God. It was an attempt by the serpent to completely reverse God's 
created order. The man and his wife submitted to the authority of the created serpent and rejected the authority of the creator God. But God will not let unnatural sin go unanswered for long. God will not allow his created order to be dismissed, abandoned, perverted, or reversed without consequence. In the end, he will uphold his created order and punish unnatural sins. For the serpent in Genesis 3, we know of his punishment. The serpent would no longer be in a place of authority, but more cursed than any livestock or wild animal. And the woman he led into disobedience would have an offspring that would eventually strike the serpent's head. For the woman, her two closest relationships in life will be marked by strife with her husband and pain with her children. And for the man, God explicitly says that the hard toil that he will have to endure was because he listened to his wife instead of listened to God. Someone might ask, well, what about forgiveness? Oh, well, God forgave Adam and Eve. Make no mistake about that. God provided a covering for their nakedness, an atonement, if you will, for their reproach. But God would not, did not, and will not allow His created order to be reversed or destroyed. And what is true of Adam and Eve is likewise true of every person, society, and nation. Every time humanity rejects God's created order, the guilty parties undoubtedly feel the pain of the restorative justice of God. If indeed, as I believe, our nation is suffering the wrath of God, it is because we are guilty of unnatural sin. We, the people, have rejected God's created order. Adam and Eve and the serpent were guilty of attempting to reverse God's order of authority. But our nation has sought to usurp, destroy, and reverse God's created order in other ways. First, the United States of America is guilty of rejecting the most basic and universal truth, a truth so obvious that it should in no way ever be questioned. And that truth is this, that God is creator and king over all. The very first verse of the Bible establishes God as creator and king. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And all throughout, the first few chapters of Genesis, you find God. You see Him creating and establishing order. All of creation belongs to God. Even when God ceased creating, we are told that the rest that He established belongs to God. The laws of creation belong to God. The commands humanity received belongs to God. God is everywhere in Genesis 1 and 2. However, we have decided and sought to usurp God's created order by removing Him from people's lives. In 1962, 
a spark was lit that caused a wildfire of intentional ignorance of our Creator and King. In its decision of Engel v. Vital, the U.S. Supreme Court decided for all of us that public school teachers and officials could not lead children to pray to God. This decision was quickly followed by restrictions against Bible reading. And someone might say, well, what about the, the separation of church and state? Well, I would answer that even if the phrase separation of church and state was found in the Constitution, and it is not, and even if that phrase as first used by Thomas Jefferson in a reply to a Baptist association of churches was intended to be a two-way wall to keep religious beliefs from wielding influence in government decisions, which it wasn't, I would say that none of that matters. God, who is neither bound by our Constitution or the decisions made by men in black robes, has established a created order for all of humanity to follow. Namely, to recognize him as creator and king over all. And any nation that suppresses this truth by not glorifying him as God and not showing gratitude to him will find itself the eventual recipient of his wrath. Likewise, a nation that goes out of its way to restrict its citizens from teaching children to acknowledge and respect God will certainly one day have citizens that themselves bear the fruit of such willful disobedience. But the attempted usurpation of God as creator and king is not the only violation of the created order by which our nation is guilty. We have also sought to destroy God's created order, through our failure to recognize that all humans are made in the image of God and are therefore sacred. One of the ways our nation has failed to honor the sanctity and dignity of human life was through our widespread institutional acceptance of slavery. To make matters worse, the slavery we sanctioned for so many years was based largely on geographic and ethnic factors. Now, even though slavery is not unique to our nation, and even though the evils of our history of slavery pale in comparison to that of others in history, such as the slavery perpetrated by Muslims throughout the centuries, it is nevertheless an evil that has called for a day of reckoning. God's created order recognizes all men to be subservient to Him and equal in worth to one another. Our nation was slow to recognize this truth, and it cost us dearly in the Civil War and even to a lesser extent today. Now, none of us are personally culpable for our forefathers' sin of slavery, but their actions left an enduring contamination. However... There is a national sin far worse than that of slavery. It is abortion. 
Since the 1973 Supreme Court decision of Roe v. Wade, some 60 to 70 million innocent lives have been taken from what should be the safest place on earth, their mother's wombs. Neither Hitler, Stalin, or even Mao were responsible for as many deaths as the seven men in black who ruled in favor of making abortion legal on demand. Not only was the creation of humans a particular and unique act of God, but humans themselves are a special creation as we are made in His image. Do we really believe that the intentional destruction of 60 to 70 million innocent imagers of God will go unpunished by Him? Will not the souls of those who never had a chance to breathe and to grow and to love and to experience life cry out to God with a loud voice like those beheaded Christians will in the tribulation who say, Lord, the one who is holy and true, how long until you judge those who live on the earth and avenge our blood? I tell you that a nation who has committed such a crime must be answerable to the God of justice. His wrath will not be contained forever against such a murderous society. And yet, we show no signs of stopping. All of the pro-life policies put in place by our nation's previous executive administration are quickly becoming undone by the current one. I will not detail the many ways that your taxpayer dollars will once again go toward funding the murderous abortion industry, but let's just say it's extensive and pervasive. Rejecting God as creator and king and refusing to honor the sanctity of human life apparently is not enough for our nation. Like a pathological criminal that cannot stop its activities, our nation has continued committing crimes against nature and nature's God. Which brings us to the third violation of God's created order. We have sought to reverse His created order of human sexuality. God made each one of us either male or female. God designed human sexuality the way He did so that we would be certain of our identity and place in the world, to give us fulfillment, and to enable us to be fruitful and multiply. Ultimately, human sexuality as God established in His created order brings glory to Him. God created humanity to be man and woman, perfect and separate complements of one another, and through their love for one another, man and woman continue the human race. This was, is, and always will be God's plan. But our nation has decided to try to reverse God's plan. We have rejected the sacred, harmonious, and natural boundaries of human sexuality, and we've done so fairly recently. With lightning speed, it seemingly took no time at all for the forces of an unholy trinity of government, media, and corporations to push people in our society from viewing homosexuality as an aberration from normalcy to tolerating it as an alternative lifestyle. And that toleration quickly became condoning it as normal and a natural condition. And then just as quickly, 
condoning homosexuality gave way to celebrating it. In the 2013 case of Obergefell v. Hodges, the Supreme Court ruled that all 50 states must recognize same-sex marriages in the same way they recognize actual marriages. The influence of the LGBTQ movement has become so widespread that I do not have to share any anecdotes with you you already know. But what you might not know is the extent to which the movement is targeting your children and grandchildren. Seeking to pervert their minds at an early age to reject the natural boundaries between man and woman that God set in his created order. You see, when you have a nation that attempts to usurp God's created order by kicking him out, and then attempts to destroy God's created order by diminishing and even killing those that bear his image, and then attempts to reverse God's created order by endorsing and celebrating both the confusion of sexual identity and the perversion of the holy institution of marriage, that nation will fail as certainly as Adam and Eve and the serpent failed in their rebellion against God. For it is not a light and carefree thing to oppose the Lord. The Lord God does not lose. Nations rise and fall. But the Lord is the same yesterday and today and forever. I do not know what the Lord will do with the United States. It seems to me that when the Lord allowed 9-11, it should have served as a wake-up call with over 3,000 people dead that day. But now, not even two decades later, the Lord has allowed an invisible enemy that we are told kills more than 3,000 people every day. Where is the widespread repentance? Where are the cries for mercy? Where's the fear of God in our land? It is nowhere to be found save within a remnant of true believers. That is what we are. We are the remnant in a nation suffering God's wrath. Will he ultimately destroy our nation? Will we splinter apart? Will we endure another civil war? Or will God in his mercy bring about widespread repentance and revival in the land? Is it possible that the Lord might make the many one again? Benjamin Franklin said that our founding fathers gave us a republic if we could keep it. But now it seems that keeping it may no longer be up to us, but rather is in the hand of the Lord. The question we must answer is not what will happen, but instead what should we, the remnant, do now? Whose side should we be on? In Psalm 11, we may have an answer. We read, I have taken refuge in the Lord. How can you say to me, escape to the mountains like a bird? For look, the wicked string bows. They put their arrows on bowstrings to shoot from the shadows at the upright in heart. When the foundations are destroyed, 
What can the righteous do? The Lord is in his holy temple. The Lord, his throne is in heaven. His eyes watch. His gaze examines everyone. The Lord examines the righteous, but he hates the wicked and those who love violence. Let him rain burning coals and suffer on the wicked. Let a scorching wind be the portion in their cup. For the Lord is righteous. He loves righteous deeds. The upright will see his face. What should we do? The leaders of our nation have had wisdom removed from them. But our trust is in the Lord. Whose side should we be on? Should we side with the establishment, or with the patriots, or with the seceders? Well, above any other choice we make, we must resolve to be on the side of the Lord. Let the actions and the words of the remnant reflect the values and words of the Lord. Pray that the Lord would restrain those in leadership positions whose foolishness could harm the people of this nation. Pray that we, the remnant, will be faithful to the Lord and maintain both a heart of humble repentance and a prophetic voice. Pray that the leaders of our nation, as unlikely as it may seem, would have life-changing encounters with the Lord. Pray for their salvation. Pray that if possible, the Lord will cause the many factions that divide our nation to come together under his leadership, under his wisdom, and under his protection. And above all else, regardless of any hardships that we endure, even if we suffer persecution for the name of Christ, pray that God's kingdom is advanced and that God would be glorified. You see, no matter what hardships we endure, even if our nation crumbles from within, even if the spark of disobedience grows into further widespread violence and oppression, even if we suffer persecution for the sake of the name of Christ, we shall endure. We shall be the salt of the earth. We shall be the light of the world. We shall be his witnesses. We shall be his ambassadors. We shall be a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his possession. For whatever the cost, be it prestige or property, whether in jail or in freedom, or even at the cost of our very lives, we will never surrender our belief that the Lord is God and our ultimate allegiance is to Him.